The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Smith Micro Software, makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go. For Mac and PC, online at stuffit.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at HumberComedy.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Judd Apatow might be the most important man in American comedy. He's taken the broad anti-authoritarian comedy of the 80s and the character-driven comedy of the 90s and imbued it with a sense of humanity. Today on The Sound of Young America, I'll talk to him about how he realized that his story was an important story to tell. Specifically, he had to realize that his story was a story worth telling. I just thought my story was boring. Just I grew up, my parents got divorced, I got depressed, I got into comedy... Uh, had trouble getting a girlfriend, you know, whatever. But then I realized that the tiniest details of it are what's hilarious and interesting and that what people connect to. A conversation with Judd Apatow this week on The Sound of Young America, plus comedy from Simon Rich. His essays are featured in Apatow's new book, which is called I Found This Funny. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Judd Apatow. He's one of America's most successful comedy writer, producers, and directors. His uh, many contributions to the worlds of cinema and television include uh, early stints on The Ben Stiller Show and The Larry Sanders Show, um, later work on films like Anchorman and Talladega Nights, um, and more recently uh, work with a sort of suite of collaborators that has led to films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Superbad and uh, most recently Funny People. Um, he's now also the editor of a Benefit Book for 826 National, the chain of uh, tutoring centers for young people called I Found This Funny that compiles uh, pieces of writing of various types that uh, amused him and a couple that uh, are not very funny, but he couldn't bear to not put into a compilation book as long as he was making one. Um, Judd Apatow, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's a pleasure to be here. This is fun because it sounds like I'm in your studio, but you're in my office. I am. I'm sitting on your Hollywood couch. Exactly. So this is, is that the technical term for this? A Hollywood couch? This is a it's a Hollywood couch, and and what that means is, it, at a certain stage, you hire other people to buy your couch, uh-huh. and then it's not comfortable but looks good. Right. So uh, this is going to be very painful for you for the next forty minutes. So, Judd, you were once. I'm sure you're not aware of this, but you were once booked to be a guest on the Sound of Young America. This would be. Um, I'm guessing, I'm thinking 2004, 2003, a long time ago. 
Um, it was to promote the DVD release of Undeclared, your second television series. And um, you had just taken this job working as a producer on Talladega Nights and all of a sudden got busy on the set of Talladega Nights. But um, the thing that I learned that so fascinated me and made me want to book you for seven years ago or however long ago it was, was that when you were a high school student, you started your own radio program in order to interview your comedy heroes and managed to trick, um, essentially, a number of the most successful comedians in the world, especially since then, to appear on the show. Um, How did you get the idea to do this? I had this friend named Josh Rosenthal, and we we both worked at our high school radio station, WKWZ, Syosset, Long Island, New York. And he used to go off when he was, you know, 15 years old and interview new bands. So he interviewed R.E.M. when their first record came out in 1982 or something like that. And I thought, wait a second. He likes music. He gets to go meet his, his uh, heroes is there a way I could create a, a version of this with comedians and, and force Steve Allen to talk to me or Henny Youngman or Jay Leno or Seinfeld? And so it was as simple as that. I just created this radio show and then I would have this enormous tape recorder. I mean, straight from the AV squad, giant green tape recorder with the worst sound quality you can imagine. And I would go to these people's apartments and they would be so depressed when they saw that I was just a child because they thought it was a real interviewer uh, that they were going to speak with. And I would ask them questions about comedy. How do you do it? How do you write jokes? Uh, How do you get stage time? And that became, in a lot of ways, my comedy college uh, education. And I interviewed like 50 people. There were people I interviewed, I don't know why. I mean, I interviewed Weird Al Yankovic and Dr. Demento. I don't think I was headed into a music parody career uh, <laughs> but just people i liked anyone i liked i'm like hey i want to meet guido sarducci and uh, and i would hunt him down how how are you hunting them down because i know that w- when i was doing essentially the same thing like th- three or four years later in my life in college um i had the benefit of the internet so what what were you doing to convince father guido sarducci that your high school radio station in long island was something that should be using some of his time. I, I realized then that if I called the Screen Actors Guild and said, who is Guido Sarducci's agent? They would tell me. And then I would call the agent and say, who's his publicist or his manager? And then I would call up and go, hi, this is Judd Apatow from WKWZ. We wanted to interview Mr. Sarducci uh, for our new uh, comedy program. And no one bothered to find out that our station's signal did not even get out of the parking lot of our high school. And there's a lot of lazy publicists out there. Luckily for us, Judd has kept some tape of those early interviews. Here's Judd Apatow as a high schooler asking Steve Allen, the longtime host of The Tonight Show, about some of the more eccentric guests for which his show was known. Keep in mind that this tape being more than 20 years old is a little bit fuzzy, and Steve Allen even at one point pauses to make sure they're still being recorded. And I read uh, you had a special guy bring all these crazy people. He said the Prince of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Are we still, uh, if you folks can hear us, of course, we, yeah, we okay. still have enough uh, tape. Yeah, that was a fellow named Sam Holmesy. We discovered on the uh, old Tonight Show, and for that matter on some of my shows even before that point, 
that uh, it was better for me to interview an eccentric person than just to interview Charlton Heston or somebody. I, I have nothing against interviewing Charlton Heston, but it would be very unlikely to be as funny as interviewing the woman with the, the world's uh, largest collection of pocket lint or whatever. <laughs> So the cleaning woman is here. We could interview her. You may, uh, you may go ahead, or you may leave. Whatever. Uh, what was it like when you, when you showed up at you know Jerry Seinfeld's hotel room in New York City, or maybe Jerry Seinfeld probably lived in New York City, so he didn't have a hotel room. But when you showed up in, in someone's in someone's place with this microphone recorder. And you had someone to connect with over this obsession, but also they were a grown-up and a professional, and you were a 17-year-old. Sometimes people would be so nice, and then sometimes it was just very strange. Uh, you know, I went and had lunch with Henny Youngman at the Carnegie Deli, and I went to Steve Allen's hotel room. And I, I remember I met John Candy at this TV show called The New Show, and he, he's someone that I always looked up to and most people were very very kind i remember spending a long time talking to harold ramus uh and that was really you know exciting uh, to me uh who i've since gotten to know very well so it, for the most part it was it was just a dream come true i just couldn't believe that it was happening let's hear another one of those interviews this one with john candy now when you see uh the movies that you're in and other second city people are in it always winds up that you guys are popping up all over. You watch Stripes and Joe Flaherty's The Guard, and uh, Dave Thomas is at the Mud Wrestling Palace, and Vacation, you pop up at the end. Why is that? Gene at the beginning of the movie, yeah. The car sales Well, uh, I guess nepotism, you know. Harold uh, directed that vacation. Harold was in SCTV on Second City. Um, in Stripes, you know, it was uh, Bill Murray held Ramos again, uh, Dan Aykroyd. John Belushi and Blues Brothers in 41. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a core of us who, uh, you know, hire each other uh, because they know what, what they're going to get. You know, there's a shorthand in working. Whereas with some actors, you bring them in, you know, they're not sure if the, those people, they know what you're going to get with uh, when you bring Joe in there and say, okay, you've got to play a Russian security guard. Joe does, just takes it, you know, and runs. And, yeah. and you know you're going to get something real good. It's the sound of young America. That was my guest, Judd Apatow, as a high school student interviewing John Candy. Judd's a director and producer and has been behind such films as The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Funny People, among others. He's curated a new book that's a benefit for 826 National, the literacy charity. It's called I Found This Funny. How did it change the way that you thought of comedians and the world of comedy to spend all this time interacting with them in a way that's very different than watching them after school on, on Mike Douglas? Well, the more I got to meet comedians, the more I thought, oh, I'm like them. I'm not different. I mean, if I sat down with Paul Reiser for an hour, I could feel what the connection was between me and him. I was just an embryonic Paul Reiser. And... A lot of them were from Long Island and New York, and it, and it felt like, oh, this is possible. You can do this. Oh, you go to college, and then on Monday nights you go to Catch Rising Star, and you sign up. And, and I could see what the stages were. And they all told me that it would take a very long time to get good at it. So that made me very patient. So even though I was terrible at stand-up for years, they all told me, oh, it takes you about seven years to become a good stand-up. So in my head, I was very patient and worked really hard, but I, I wasn't cocky. I didn't feel like... My success was imminent. I thought, oh, okay, well, I just have to 
sit down and write jokes. And I, I looked up to the comedians who worked hard, people like Jerry Seinfeld and Larry Miller, who wrote a lot of jokes. Because a lot of comedians, they just get high all day and go to the mall, and their acts don't change in 10 years. And then these other guys, guys like Rick Overton, every time you saw them, they were saying something completely different. And, and those were the guys I looked up to. I get the impression from hearing you talk about your high school years that you had essentially like built your life around comedy and in fact that also you had sort of bent your parents to your will to enable this life built around comedy is that the case i i think so at a very early age i became interested in comedy my parents had Bill Cosby records laying around and my grandmother was friends with this woman named Toady Fields and Toady Fields was a comedian in the vein of Joan Rivers uh, and I went and saw her when I was a, a kid and I remember seeing her have a comeback tour after she had her leg amputated because she had diabetes and so we went to the Westbury Music Fair and the place went crazy and she was hysterical and somewhere in my head I must have thought well this is a good life because even if you have your leg removed from diabetes, people still love this woman. I, I must have felt like I had some limb removed as a child, that there was something wrong with me. And I thought, look at this weird, chubby woman with one leg, adored. And I, I, and I think I had multiple experiences like that as a kid where comedians who were kind of freaks who spoke their mind and they, they said everything they thought was wrong with the world and they were all really angry... Uh, I must have felt that way as a kid, and it, it, it helped me organize my thoughts. And then at some point, I started watching talk shows, and, and when I could stay up late enough, I would see comedians on The Tonight Show. And then Saturday Night Live came on the air, and that that did it. I, I mean, heard that you actually recorded, audio recorded Saturday Night Lives, transcribed them, and then for no other reason than the joy of transcription. Yes. I, I, it, well, there was no VCR at that point. So there was no way to record it uh, in, in, in those years. And the, the only way for me to have a memory of the show, because you didn't know if they would even repeat the show, was I would take a cassette recorder and I would audio tape the show and then transcribe things that I found interesting. And I guess I just wanted to understand how it worked and what it looked like on paper. I remember transcribing Bill Murray's Oscar predictions from Weekend Update. So maybe I had personal problems at that point that I put that much time into it. I spent a lot of time alone in my room. I, you know, I think about my kids now and they have computers and iPads and they're chatting all day long with other people. But as a kid, I went home at three o'clock and I went in my room and closed the door and watched the Mike Douglas show and sat in my closet listening to Pete Townsend. And it was very solitary, but also very focused. I was really listening to the music and the lyrics and, 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 uh, and thinking things through in a way I don't know if kids are right now because they're talking to 200 people every night, which right. is a whole different type of childhood experience. There's this scene in Freaks and Geeks that I talked to uh, Martin Starr about when he was on the show where he comes home from school and uh, uh, gets himself a giant piece of cake or pie and uh, watches Gary Shandling do stand-up on TV. And there's a really... It's just, it's just the sweetest thing I've ever seen on film. Um, 
And there's something interesting to me about the idea of someone geeking out over something that is not shared. Like so much of being a geek is about like, is about finding something that you can connect to other people about and, and tell them excitedly about like whether it's playing Dungeons and Dragons with other people or whether mm-hmm. it's, um, and I, I wonder if you had other people to share that obsessive, passionate interest that you had. I really didn't. And that, that's what was interesting about being a comedy nerd as a kid. Nobody shared my interests. It, it was just me alone uh, watching uh, the dinosaur show every day. And, and, you know, I would highlight the TV guide to see who was on Merv Griffin uh, or the Tonight Show. And I would go home every day and I would make a grilled cheese sandwich and I would have a big cake, Entenmann's chocolate cake, and I would... I would have a bite of grilled cheese, then I would take a scoop of the cake, and then I would drink some milk, and I would watch TV. <laughs> and, and that's what I did for years. And, and looking back, I was very happy doing it. I, I think of those times fondly, but it was also a very lonely thing that also had to do with the fact that my friends, many of them were athletes, and my parents were divorced, and I had nothing else to do. And it was a funny experience to move to Los Angeles and meet comedians who all had the same interest as me. And suddenly I could talk to, you know, Dana Gould about obscure episodes of car 54. Where are you? Uh, in a way that I, I, I didn't as a kid. In fact, my, my, my friend Ronnie Gardner from Long Island, from when I grew up said to me, uh, recently, uh, now I finally understand why you're watching all those stupid shows. <laughs> you know, he made the connection to, you know, all the times I forced him to watch uh, Gary Mule Deer on The Tonight Show. Um, did you feel like you had the talent that it took to be a stand-up comic when you were 19 or 20 years old when you left college? Did you, did you, were you optimistic? I, I think I was hopeful that I could be a Jay Leno or Bill Maher type of comedian. Those were the people I looked up to. But the more stand-up I did, the more I realized that I wasn't angry enough to be a good stand-up. I didn't have a lot of personal stories yet. And I didn't have a unique vision like someone like Stephen Wright. And then I would open up for people like Jim Carrey on the road, and he would just be a billion times better at performing and a million times funnier than I was. And I would sit in the back of the room and think, I am never going to be this good. And I do not want to be just solid at this. And it, and then people kept asking to buy jokes from me. Most comedians won't sell jokes because they want them for themselves. But I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of a nice way to make a living. I could write jokes for other people. And slowly that career was much better than my live performing career. And I wrote the Grammys one year uh, with Gary Shandling when he hosted and started writing Roseanne and Tom Arnold's act. And I thought, well, I think the universe is telling me to get off the stage. Well, speaking of of the universe telling you to get off the stage, I want to play a clip of the uh, 1992 young HBO Young Comedians special, which you appeared on with... Um, among other people, Ray Romano and Andy Kindler and Janine Garofalo, Nick DiPaolo, all these, Bill Bellamy, all these brilliant uh, other people who went on to brilliant stand-up comedy and comedy in general careers. Except um, one. <laughs> now, the thing you need to know about this performance is I had never been on cable television before where you were allowed to curse. 
So I kept cursing because I thought, <laughs> oh, you're supposed to curse on HBO. Why am I wasting this opportunity? But none of my jokes had curses in them. So I added uh, the F curse and other words. Did you also drop your pants? I don't think I dropped my pants, but I, w- I would have if someone had recommended it to me. I just thought this is the place to do something. And so whenever I hear this, I think, oh, man, there's so many beeps. It's like a Richard Pryor concert. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Judd Apatow in 1992. People can deal with amazing things, you know. I, I'm such a loser. I'm so unhappy. Like, my uncle, he's got one of these electronic voice boxes, yet he's really happy. He thinks it's, like, funny. He's like, how you doing? I'm Bob. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it scares the out of everybody he meets, because no one expects it. It's like, that's my friend Tony. How you doing, Tony? Oh, God! <laughs> it's not like you can get a shirt. Get ready. I sound like a Cylon from Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> he loves to go to the drive-thru at McDonald's all the time, you know, just to give the guy I'm like a cheeseburger, please. Are you making fun of me? I'm not making fun of you. It's crazy. Hey, Jay. No. That was my guest Judd Apatow on the stand-up stage in 1992. When we come back, we'll hear about how he transitioned into being a writer and then ultimately a director and producer for successful comedies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Funny People, and many, many others. Plus, our radio versions of some of the pieces by our contributor Simon Rich that are included in Judd Apatow's book, I Found This Funny. It's a collection of humor writing that Judd curated. It's The Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Whether you're a MaxFunCon veteran or you've been thinking about going for two years and you're ready to pull the trigger, prepare yourself. MaxFunCon 2011 tickets will go on sale the day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, at MaxFunCon.com. MaxFunCon is a weekend of entertainment and enlightenment and friendship in Lake Arrowhead, California, just east of Los Angeles. Join us in a luxurious summer camp environment for comedy shows and classes and new friends and all kinds of great stuff. It's kind of hard to describe. Actually, if I could offer one piece of advice, maybe you go to Flickr and search Max FunCon and you'll see the pictures of people having a blast. Anyway, be sure to log into MaxFunCon.com the day after Thanksgiving to get your tickets. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program this week is the comedy writer and producer Judd Apatow. Judd has put together a really wonderful new book. It's a benefit for the literacy charity, 826 National. It's called I Found This Funny. 
It collects pieces that he has found amusing over the years and a few that aren't so amusing that just struck him as a writer. One of the contributors to Judd's book is Simon Rich, who also happens to be a contributor to The Sound of Young America. So we thought we would put together a few readings of his pieces from Judd Apatow's book. Here's Paul Shear reading a piece called My Friend's New Girlfriend. My friend Jared found a girlfriend this summer, and I am so jealous. We're the two least popular kids in the ninth grade, and we've always been best friends. But now Jared's always bragging about his girlfriend and how awesome she is. It makes me feel pathetic. I never had a girlfriend before, but this girl sounds incredible. Her name is Tiffany Sparkle. She goes to a different school, a small modeling academy in New Brunswick. He showed me some pictures of her from magazines, and believe me, she is hot. He met her over the summer when he was visiting his grandparents in Canada. He saved her life. She was about to get run over by a double-decker bus when all of a sudden he skateboarded through traffic and pushed her out of the way. There's this huge crowd of Canadians standing around, and when Jared saved Tiffany's life, everyone just started cheering like crazy. Then she kissed him on the mouth. When I heard that story, I was like, give me a break, because it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. They spent the entire summer having sex all over the place, in all of the different sex positions, and now they talk every night on the phone. The amazing thing about this girl is that she isn't just hot. She also shares a lot of Jared's interests. She's totally into web design and the game Warcraft, and she's also really shy. For example, when she visited Jared over spring break, she didn't want to meet me because she was too embarrassed. When I heard that, I was like, come on, because that's so like Jared. It's kind of amazing that they found each other. There are some other similarities, too. Like he showed me a letter she wrote him last week about how she wanted to try some new kind of sex position, and at first I thought he had written it himself because her handwritings are so similar. Tiffany also has severe bronchial asthma, which is pretty great for Jared because now he has someone to talk to about that. The big ninth grade dance is in four days. I asked Jared to set me up with one of Tiffany's friends from her modeling academy, but he said that everyone there already has a boyfriend. I asked him for advice on how to find a date, but all of his suggestions involved saving girls' lives. In the end, I decided just to walk up to this girl I like named Laura and ask her point blank if she wanted to go with me. I was so nervous that my arms and legs were shaking really fast like they do in gym class when the teacher says it's my turn to lead the stretches, but I asked her anyway and she said yes. I talk to Laura on the phone every night now, which is pretty great because Jared never has time to talk to me anymore. He's not even going to the dance. Tiffany's flying to the United States for one night only and she hates dancing. I mean, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, my date Laura is pretty cool and other than her leg brace, she's very attractive, but she's certainly no Canadian model. It's hard to believe that when I'm on the dance floor this Friday trying to work up the guts to kiss her for the first time, Jared's going to be at home in his bedroom making love to the girl of his dreams. (laughs) Some guys have all the luck. My Friend's New Girlfriend by Simon Rich, read by Paul Shear. That's part of the new humor compilation I Found This Funny, which was edited by my guest, Judd Apatow. By the way, you can catch Paul Shear on FX's The League. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy director and producer Judd Apatow. In the early part of his career, Judd Apatow transitioned from being a stand-up comedian into being a writer for other comedians and later a producer for television shows like The Ben Stiller Show, The Critic, and Larry Sanders. Here's a clip of my guest Judd Apatow on The Ben Stiller Show doing his impression of Jay Leno. 
Tonight's show auditions. First up, Jay Leno. I can't believe you guys are making me do this. You know you're going to give it to me. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, I tell a joke. That's all I do. I tell jokes. You know, I don't do the tea time theater. I'm just, you know, I tell jokes. You know, I'm the home friends. Did you read the paper today? I mean, this is what I do. It's, it's pretty simple, really. I got it. They gave it to me. I got to show all that kissing up paint off. Time to kiss up to Mr. J. Oh, yes, it's all mine. Mine is mine. I'm going to get rid of Johnny's mug. Can we get Doc Severinsen on the phone? I have to tell him something. So you started writing people's stand-up acts. What what was the first moment that led you to believe that writing would be your career rather than stand-up? Somebody asked me to write jokes for them, and then that led to me and my friend Joel Madison writing jokes for Jeff Dunham's puppet, Walter. <laughs> Jeff Dunham's old man puppet. He just created it. I don't know. Maybe we got a few hundred dollars, and, and, and that was a, a big moment. But what would happen is people would get specials, and if I wrote their stand-up act, I would get a, like a producing credit. They wouldn't give me a writing credit, so they'd make me the co-producer. So I got that on a Jim Carrey special and a Roseanne special. And then suddenly some of the specials had some sketches in them. And then I met Ben Stiller one night online at a Elvis Costello unplugged taping. And we both knew that HBO was looking for a sketch show. And we went in two weeks later and pitched this show, and, and they bought it. And then they sold it to Fox to be on Fox. So next thing I know, I went from just writing, you know, stretch marks jokes for Roseanne to running a sketch show with Ben with zero experience. And I, I learned a ton about editing and writing from working with Ben, who, who, who knew way more than I did. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy writer and director Judd Apatow. Apatow's mentor was the stand-up comedian, writer, and actor Gary Shandling, and in fact, still is. He worked most extensively with Shandling during his time as a writer and later producer and director on The Larry Sanders Show. Um, Gary Shandling, by the time he did The Larry Sanders Show, had already done like a monstrously groundbreaking sitcom in It's Gary Shandling's Show, which was uh, a show that was uh, basically about deconstructing the... Uh, the structure of the sitcom they would you know there were a lot of jokes about them go they would walk from set to set from time to time and address the camera all these kind of crazy things and this was you know pretty exciting stuff in 1987 or 88 or or when this was going on um the larry sanders show was uh very groundbreaking in a very different way it did it had that little element of meta that it was about a fictional talk show and they would and you would show the the real talk show but what was really amazing to me about the larry sanders show which is maybe my favorite television show frankly is is that every episode is just so focused on the characters it is it is as character driven as any you know, sitcoms are supposed to be situation-driven, mm-hmm. right? And the the Larry Sanders show is it feels like it feels like every single choice was driven by those characters, and I wonder um, I wonder how that changed how you wrote when you were coming into it as essentially a joke writer. Well, I didn't really know anything about telling stories or characters at that point, and. Gary 
was doing something that was very interesting, which is he was doing a show which was partially fabricated and partially influenced by events which were happening in his life currently. Gary was getting offered all of those talk shows uh, when Carson stepped down. He kept getting offered the 1230 time slots. And he had to make a decision whether or not he was going to make a show about talk shows or actually be a real talk show host. So it was an amazing time for a few years. You know, the show and reality kept swirling around each other in a really interesting way. And David Letterman came on the show and Thomas Snyder came on the show, who was chosen to be on after Letterman. And and, and it was really fun. But Gary had a real sense of who these people were and a philosophy about the show, which is he said that the show is about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. And that's something that I, I always remembered and I think it's true for most storytelling, which is, you know, people are trying to make a connection and what gets in the way? The the fact that Hank is jealous of Larry or that Larry's mad at Hank because he keeps falling asleep on the show and it threatens his career, but they do all <laughs> love each other, but all these weird details of their show business world you know, stops them from connecting and just giving each other a hug. I'm sorry. I'm still laughing about that one where Hank kept falling yes. asleep on the air. <laughs> one of my favorite episodes of, of the Larry Sanders show, which I, I think just came out on DVD, the entire series, was where Hank gets really proud of being Jewish and he wants to wear a yarmulke on the show and the show doesn't want him to because they think it'll alienate part of their audience. So whenever they cut to Hank, it's on this insane close-up of just like his <laughs> eyes and mouth so that you don't see the top of his head has a yarmulke on it. What's beautiful about him getting obsessed with being Jewish, if I remember, is that his obsession with his Judaism is grows is specifically out of him uh, having the opportunity to host the Chabad telethon. Well, he, he has a crush on his female rabbi as well. Oh, yeah. I think that was a big part of it. Let's hear a little bit of that episode of The Larry Sanders Show. Hank, the talk show's sidekick, played by Jeffrey Tambor, asks one of the writers of the show to change a joke due to his newly discovered faith, which is odd because previously Hank had been, I don't know how to put this, a little bit sleazy. Uh, listen, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, about the sketch you wrote about the one size that fits all condom. Yeah, what about it? I'd like you to change it. Change it. I, I just feel awkward uh, appearing in, in something that treats sexual promiscuity among teens in such a cavalier manner. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Let me get that down. Hey, I'm not pitching a joke. My rabbi is coming by this afternoon, plans on staying to see the show. I'm not going to participate in this kind of material. <laughs> Stop it, you're killing it. Okay, rabbi is coming by the show. And what makes you think this is so funny? Wait, you're not even Jewish. I am Jewish. No, you're not. I am Jewish. No, you're not. I am Jewish. When we did the dyslexic accountant sketch last month, you complained to me because it made you look too Jewish. Yes, well, people can change, Phil. This is called spiritual growth. Well, I'm sorry. This is called disbelief because most Jewish people that I know are smart. Well, at least I'm, I'm smart enough not to worship a, a, a god that sits in the middle of a Chinese restaurant with a sign that says, rub my belly for luck. That was Jeffrey Tambor as Hank on the Gary Shandling vehicle, The Larry Sanders Show. My guest is one of that show's writers and producers, and now one of America's most important comedy writer, producer, directors, Judd Apatow. 
Judd went on to executive produce the short-lived show Freaks and Geeks, a funny and heartfelt show about a group of high school students in the early 1980s. Here's a clip from that show. One of the freaks, the tough and suave Daniel, played by James Franco, sees one of the geeks, the introverted Harris, played by Stephen Lee Shepard, reading a Dungeons and Dragons book at school. The two don't normally talk, but Daniel stops and gives Harris a strange look. You're not going to beat me up, are you? No. What are you reading? The, uh, the monster manual. It's a Dungeons and Dragons handbook. Do you play? No. You should. Make a good dungeon master, I can tell. Well, yeah? Mm-hmm. Thanks. Can I ask you something? Sure. What do you make of me? Excuse me? Well, if someone asked you, what do you think of Daniel Desario? What would you say? Would you say he's a loser? No, no, you're not a loser, because you have sex. But if you weren't having sex, then we could definitely debate the issue. You know, you're a pretty interesting guy, Harris. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you do your own thing. Comfortable with yourself. You got it pretty wired, huh? Yeah, I guess I do. I don't have sex, though. <laughs> you created uh, Freaks and Geeks with Paul Feig. I, I did not create it. Uh, Paul, Paul Feig created Paul created you. the show and, and, and brought it to me as a spec, Uh and that's an amazing thing. No one ever hands you a spec like, here's a TV pilot I wrote, and then you read it, and it's awesome. It, it has never happened to me since. It, it, it's, I mean, he had a complete vision of, of, the, of the show, and it, and it also was a very intimate idea. And the second I saw the cover, I was like, freaks and geeks, oh, I'm so in on this. I don't even know what this is that I'm in. I've heard and read, I think I was reading an old Times Magazine piece about you, maybe, and uh, Adam McKay, the brilliant comedy writer and director who's, who's worked with Will Ferrell extensively and worked with you and Will Ferrell, had a, what I thought was a really telling quote in it. And I'm, I don't have it written down in front of me, but the effect of it was that he had known you as like a Hollywood joke guy, that he had thought of you as a guy that um, was and, and I had heard this from other people as well, that the people thought of you as a guy who was a great person to bring in and hire to write a bunch of great jokes for a couple of days, the kind of thing that you were grinding out on, um, on The Critic. And that when he met you after you had worked on Freaks and Geeks and after you had spent those f- five or six years working on Larry Sanders, it was like meeting a different guy. I, you know, I learned a lot from Gary and I learned a lot from Paul and most of it was about being personal and that your stories are what connect with people. And somewhere I read, and I I don't know who said it, they said the best gift you can give to other people is to share your story. Uh, And and that had a big effect on me because I just thought my story was boring. Just, I grew up, my parents got divorced, I got depressed, I got into comedy uh, had trouble getting a girlfriend, you know, whatever. Uh, but then I realized that the tiniest details of it 
are what's hilarious and interesting and that what people connect to. And a lot of that was from Gary, but even even more so from Paul, because you know your heart broke for Paul in in these stories about how you know he bought a Parisian night suit, you know this terrible jumpsuit, and thought he would look cool at school, and then everyone thought it was the stupidest <laughs> thing they'd ever seen. You know these moments where you just you so want to be liked and you so want to connect, and, and Paul really understood this idea of being a kid and how some kids were desperately trying to grow up and other kids were just desperately trying to stay kids, and it made me think more about my life and what might be interesting about my life uh, to other people. More with Judd Apatow when we come back. Plus, another piece from the new collection of humor writing that he edited, I Found This Funny. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week on the show, my guest is the comedy writer, producer, and director, Judd Apatow. When we got a copy of his book, I Found This Funny, which is a collection of his favorite humor writing, we noticed that there were a bunch of pieces by Sound of Young America contributor Simon Rich. We thought we'd record a couple with some of our favorite comics for you to enjoy. This one is called My Mom's All-Time Top 5 Greatest Boyfriends by Jordy Strompson, age 11. It's read by comedian Jen Kirkman. My Mom's All-Time Top 5 Greatest Boyfriends by Jordy Stromson, age 11. Number 5, Jason Morgan. This guy is awesome. He's by far the strongest, biggest dude I've ever met. But that's not all. He also plays for the Norfolk Admirals, my favorite minor league hockey team. My mom dated Jason for a few days last summer, and every time he came to the house, he gave me a regulation Norfolk Admirals hockey puck. By the end, I had five pucks. Once I ran into him in the kitchenette in the middle of the night, he was making a sandwich. I couldn't believe there was a real hockey player in my house. I wanted to say something, but I was too nervous, so I just stood there. Then after a while, he looked at me and said, Hey, little buddy, how's your skating? And I said, Fine! Number four, Igor Radiloff. Igor wasn't as strong as Jason, but he was just as cool because he also played hockey for the Norfolk Admirals. He only dated my mom once, so I only had one chance to talk to him. Still, it was pretty awesome. It was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep, so I went to the kitchenette, and there was Igor Radiloff in my house. I asked him to sign my regulation pucks, and he said he would. He couldn't believe I had so many pucks. Wow, kid, he said, you're a real fan. 
he autographed all five of them and wrote number 16 next to his name, which is his number. Number three, Mikhail Barinka. This guy also played hockey for the Norfolk Admirals. He had four goals and two assists in 2006-2007, which isn't great, but it was only his first year. When I asked him to sign my regulation Norfolk Admiral pucks next to Igor's signature, he made a weird scrunched up face and stared at my mother for a while like he was confused. I guess he doesn't understand a lot of English because he's from the Czech Republic. Number two, Steve Passmore. This guy played for the Norfolk Admirals. He was an okay goalie, but he had some bad luck, so his save percentage was only $8.99. I liked him because his name has the word pass in it, which is a hockey word, and he plays hockey. I only saw Steve once in the kitchenette. I couldn't believe there was a real hockey player in my house. So I ran into my bedroom and grabbed the old cigar box I used to hold my pucks. When I came back with the box, my mother kept saying that I should go to bed. No, no, Jordy, she started shouting, please. She can be really strict. Anyway, I could tell Steve wanted to see what was in the box, so I opened it. Wow, he said, you must be my number one fan. I gave him a puck and told him to sign it next to Igor and Nicholas's signature. Nicholas was another one of my mom's boyfriends, but he didn't make the top five. At first, he looked a little confused. He said something under his breath, and I was scared he wasn't going to sign my pucks at all, but then he took out a pen and signed all of them. It was weird because he didn't look at the pucks when he signed them. Instead, the whole time he was staring at my mother. His signature was pretty cool. Better than Nicholas's, but not as good as Igor's. Number one, Marty Wilford. This guy is great at hockey. He had 40 points in the 2006-2007 season with my favorite hockey team, the Norfolk Admirals. He went out with my mom for almost two weeks. I didn't get to see him very often because my mom had made a rule that I couldn't leave my room when her boyfriends were over. So one night, I decided to sneak out of my room and wait in the kitchenette. I mean, how many chances do you get to see a real hockey player in your own house? When I showed Marty my puck collection, he was super impressed. What the hell is going on, he kept saying. Then he looked at my mom and started to cry. It was awesome because I always feel ashamed when I cry, but I thought if a guy like Marty Wilford can cry, an AHL all-star center with 35 assists, then it's okay if I do too. Marty kept crying, and I was so blown away that I started crying too. And when I went over to him, he hugged me with his huge arms, and it was like I had just scored a goal, and he had given me the assist. That was My Mom's All-Time Top 5 Greatest Boyfriends by Jordy Stromson, age 11. It was written by Simon Rich and read by comedian Jen Kirkman. It's collected in Judd Apatow's new book, I Found This Funny, my favorite pieces of humor and some that may not be funny at all. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Judd Apatow, the mega comedy producer, writer extraordinaire. He's behind movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Funny People, among many, many others. Here's a clip from his most recent film, Funny People. A group of aspiring comedians, played by Jason Schwartzman, Seth Rogen, and Jonah Hill, are all out hiking. Schwartzman's character has decided to open up to his friends, but he's met with a rebuke from Jonah Hill. When I was younger, my grandfather died, and um, we were all gathered around him. And um, there was this one candle next to his bed. And right after he died, the candle started flickering, and then it just went out. Yeah, 
sounds crazy, but we all we all thought it was him going to heaven, you know. You don't pass through fire to get to heaven. I think he went to hell. What'd you just say? I just I think your grandfather probably went to hell. <laughs> don't do it. Are you kidding me right now? I'm not, I'm not, I'm sorry. You're going to make fun of me right now just after I opened up to you guys like that? It's not my fault your grandfather's in hell. It's not a big deal. Some grandpas go to hell. <laughs> you guys are just projecting all your hatred onto me. Okay, and don't be super bummed out because your grandfather's playing backgammon with Hitler right now. <laughs> it, it seems like, I mean, w- one of the big themes that has come up in your film since you've started writing and directing your own movies and uh, sort of, and since you've been... Uh, working so closely with uh, young writers that, you know, your your Seth Rogans and so forth, um, is that comedy, the world of comedy, and and it's generally the world of young men is about sort of separating yourself out from things so that you can have the room to, you know, shoot jabs and make jokes and so forth. And so many of your films have been about that, have been about the kind of scary effort that it takes to engage the world Mm -hmm. emotionally. I mean, like people say growing up, but it's like that specific part of growing up that like opening yourself up to making a connection with someone. Absolutely. I think that that's, probably the recurring theme of of most of my work is trying to make connections with other people and you know for certain people it's a it's a terrifying thing and 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 it's like a comedian a comedian often has trouble connecting with people but they're more comfortable in front of 300 people that's a lot of what funny people was about how isolated he was while at the same time loved by most everybody but had no no strong intimate connections and so you know in a sense that's what the 40 year old virgin is about is someone that's so afraid to make connections that he just hides in his room working out and and doesn't risk falling in love because he's so worried that he's going to be humiliated at some point and knocked up you know it is a bunch of stoned idiots trying to hold on to their youth and not mature and then suddenly one of them has no choice but to get very serious about growing up fast whether he likes it or not and so i I, i'm always uh i'm always fascinated by that moment and probably because you know that's how i feel most of the time is just uh you know like when i was a kid i just was in my room you know uh you know when things were happening and you know uh and I felt separated from other kids, whether because I was small and not athletic or because my parents were going through a bad divorce. I, 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 I took solace sitting in that room watching the Mike Douglas show. And in a way, it, it, there's a part of my wiring that kind of wants to metaphorically go back in the room all the time. And so it's been a, you know, a lifelong uh, quest to not want to do that. I, I really get the impression looking at your career that you must that you must really personally have dedicated yourself to to developing other people's talent. I you know I was lucky that people took me under their wing so when I wanted to be a a, a comedy writer and a comedian people like Gary Shandling and Jim Carrey and Roseanne 
and Tom Arnold, they, they gave me jobs and, and they were very nice to me. I remember writing a pilot for Colin Quinn and just thinking, this is the funniest guy I've, I've ever met. And, and I learned so much from them. And I guess it just made me think, oh, that's, that's what you do. You do that for other people. Uh, you know, that warmth from, from all of these people that I, I couldn't believe would hang out with me for five minutes, uh, you know, made me feel like, you know, that's the kind of person I want to be so that when I, you know, meet someone that's young and talented, you want to encourage them and tell them what you learned in a way. It's like a reverse of my interviews, except no one's interviewing me. I'm the babbling person. Sometimes I'll be talking, giving advice to a young comedian. And I think, Judd, just shut up. What are you just stop talking and babbling? They look so bored, <laughs> but it's, but it's been fun. I mean, it was, it was great to, you know, meet people like, Seth Rogen and Jason Siegel and and notice that they were great actors, but they also had comedic minds. And to just tell them, you know, write, just write. You don't have to just go out on auditions. You can make your own projects. And Seth was already doing a little of that. Jason, I don't think had thought about that yet. And I mean, these th- are guys that you got to know in in the case of Seth Rogen and Jason Siegel when they were literally teenagers yeah seth was 16 and 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 i think jason was 18 or 19 and but you know i'm such a comedy nerd when i would meet somebody like seth or jason siegel in my head i felt like i was meeting steve martin like i in a way i'm i'm just such a nerd for comedy that i would just be able to tell like oh that's the guy i just met the guy oh he's 16 years old but that's the guy he just walked in and he doesn't even know it yet and it's, uh, I used to joke about it, like, it's like when they can find the Dalai Lama when he's just like a baby. Like, that's a Dalai Lama! He doesn't even know he's the Dalai Lama yet. And uh, so for me, it's really fun to just watch it evolve and, you know, be helpful where I can be helpful. And at some point, they don't really even need any assistance anymore. But, you know, there's nothing more exciting than seeing Forgetting Sarah Marshall come out really well, because it's not just that movie. It's a decade of interaction with with jason and, and seeing him uh you know fulfill his potential and, and now i'm sure he'll do much more so you know it's corny but in a weird way it it, it does feel like your kids uh or as seth says like i'm the weird uncle <laughs> um this book that you've edited for mcsweeney's that's a benefit for 826 um, is a hefty tome. Yes. And I, I can only imagine that given your uh, personal emotional commitment to things that are funny and also your just general tendency, the same tendency that drove you to interview 50 comedians as a high school student, I can only imagine also drove you to um, get totally obsessive over compiling this book. Yes. Um, what, what did you have to do to do this? You know, I you know I really look up to Dave Eggers because he really is a, a, an amazing writer. And one day we were on the phone. And I said maybe I could do one of those books, like that David Sedaris book you put out, where he picked his favorite short stories. I could pick my favorite funny short stories or funny pieces of of uh, writing, and we could just call it "I Found This Funny." And so for about a year, me and my uh, assistant Lisa uh, read. A bazillion pieces and it, it does contain a lot of my uh, favorite writers everyone from people like Paul Feig and 
Adam McKay and Robert Smigel and Conan O'Brien and Adam Sandler to F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Raymond uh, Sound Carver. of Young America contributor Simon Rich. Yes, Simon Rich, who's hysterical. There's a bunch Almost of his unreal. pieces. Yeah, there's six pieces from him that are so <laughs> funny. Um, I love when someone puts together a collection of things that I should read. You know, like there's nothing I like more than like Esquire's 100 best pieces of journalism, things like that. And so I thought, oh, this is a perfect plane or bathroom read. Everything's about 10, 15 pages, and there's everything in it from, uh, you know, cartoons to Tony Hoagland poetry to also, you know, a chapter from Steve Martin's memoirs and a New Yorker piece about Bill Hicks. So did did it's, it's reading great. Did re- reading and rereading any uh, all of this stuff, uh, do you feel like it had an effect on you as someone who, you know, for all your other duties as king of hollywood and we're sitting here in your sumptuous hollywood palace yes <laughs> um for all your other duties as as king of hollywood you are essentially a writer um how did getting so deep into that over that period of time affect you personally uh, anytime uh, i read something uh, that shows people's interior life it just helps me find the courage to say something i'm thinking that i don't think i should say out loud but also, it, it's, it's inspiring to just see all the different styles of comedy writing. And then I put a lot of stories in there that are not funny at all because I just love the writers. There's a great Andre Debut short story, the guy that uh, wrote the short story that led to the film In the Bedroom. One of the, one of the funniest films of, what was that, 2007, Not a hilarious movie. And this short story, not Maybe funny I either. I misinterpreted. Did I not understand the movie? <laughs> it's a good Alice... Uh, uh, Monroe story in there. I mean, there's, there's things that I just like a lot that I, it's fun for me to expose people to. It's exceedingly kind of you to take all this time to be on the sound of young America. And it's, it's really a, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It was great to be here in my own office. Judd Apatow is a Hollywood writer, producer, etc. God, we didn't even get to talk about how my friend Paul Rust is writing a movie with Pee Wee. Uh, What's better than that? Nothing could be better than that. Oh, my God. Uh, His new literary compilation for McSweeney's that benefits the tutoring centers of 826 National is called I Found This Funny, My Favorite Pieces of Humor, and some that may not be funny at all. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Development director, Teresa Thorne. And our intern, Leo Portugal. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. And you can always download all of our shows 1,000% for free in iTunes or on our website, MaximumFun.org. Tune into the show next week when our guests will be superstars of indie rock, The National, and Dr. Dog. I hope we'll see you then. Ta-ta for now. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.